Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. Indeed, uh, totally my pleasure to be here. As Michael mentioned, we have been, I'm just going to redecorate a little bit. It's fine. Um, as Michael mentioned, we have been here for actually just six months last week. And, you know, there are different ways of kind of gauging your progress in a new place. And uh, one way that I'm gauging it is this. Uh, last week, Aaron was out of town, and so I kind of, kind of, went a little freestyle on the subway. I was like, I know we normally take a certain one, but I feel pretty confident that I know a different way. Um, It was indeed not the right way at all. And then in a really loud voice, my seven-year-old on the subway said, Mom, you know we should have taken the one. And so I think that proves that at least some of us are getting the hang of New York life. It's not really me in the subway, but my seven-year-old can get us anywhere. He was right. We indeed should have taken the one. So... So you heard this passage. It's like, you know, a pretty fun one. We've got demon possession and earthquake and almost suicide. It's, you know, like a, like a light summer reading. Um, and we're just going to dive right into it. It is essentially, um, this is a passage about power. It's about what happens when we objectify, commodify, and dehumanize people. And then it's also a beautiful alternative vision one that's built on love, freedom, and dignity, centered on the Trinity, and the, which is the ultimate example of like a healthy power relationship. So there are times when you read a section of scripture, and you're like, um, I, I respect what the Bible is, and I respect that it instructs all of us, and that it's timeless, but I can't totally see how that there then connects with this and here and now. And this, to me, feels kind of like the opposite of that. This feels to me like when an old, old story feels sort of eerily modern and prescient, like surely there is nothing new under the sun. So I want to look at a couple of the major plot points, and then I want to ask us all a couple questions to consider. And then after that, I want to share the gospel reading which is from John 17, and I think we can look at that almost as like a vision or a map for a way out of the place that we find ourselves, kind of the actual good news, as it were. So we're going to start with the first action point of the story you just heard, okay? So it's the demon-possessed woman, and Paul casts out her demon. So this woman is a slave, And the demon possession means that she has the gift of fortune-telling. And this is important. This gift of fortune-telling 
is profitable, but it's important to remember it's profitable not for her, not for her family, not for her children. It's profitable for her owners. And so sometimes we just read this as simply demon possession, and we think that Paul's just sort of doing a random good deed by by casting out this demon, almost like he's helping to change a flat tire or something. Like there's something bad happening, and I fixed it, and everyone's happier for it. It would be more like, though, to use the flat tire analogy, it would be more like if Paul stood just outside a mechanic's shop, and as every car was towed in with a flat tire, Paul intervened right beforehand, changed them all himself before they could get to the mechanic, thereby essentially putting the mechanic out of business. What I mean is that Paul is solving a problem that this owner very much does not want solved because this problem is making him a lot of money. So we don't know exactly what demon possession looks like in this particular telling, except we know that it's lucrative, again, not for her, but for the owner. But like if you've ever been to a sleepover in seventh grade and watched a really scary movie, I think you know that people who are demon possessed by and large, like they don't love it. I've never seen like a horror movie where the person who's demon possessed is like, no, 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 I don't need an exorcism. This is totally working for me. So I think it's pretty safe to say that this woman would just as soon not be demon possessed, but it is a very good gig for her owner. And so what Paul does in this passage is so much more than a good deed. He's setting her free from the torment that she's lived with, and also he is definitely ruining the business of her owner. So this is a subversive act. This is a rebellious act. It's an act that says, I care more about the health of the powerless than the pockets of the powerful. This slave owner has dehumanized this woman. He treats her as an object for his own use and profit. And Paul gives back to her her humanity, her dignity. And then because Paul lives in a world of broken power structures, much like the one we live in, his gift of freedom for the woman results in his own imprisonment. And that's an important thing to keep in mind in this story. So Luke, the writer of this passage, is telling us that there are two ways to use power. There is this corrupted power way of the world where we enslave people and keep people in pain because of how it might benefit us. But then there's this way of Jesus where we use our own power to set people free even if it results in our own imprisonment. So I'd like to stop here just for a moment and invite each one of us to consider where we find ourselves in this story. In which ways, if we're honest, are each of us the slave owner, benefiting from the wounds of another, preferring to think about our own bottom line or comfort, willing to dehumanize or look away, to continue business as usual because it works for us? And then in which ways have we been invited to follow Paul's example, offering freedom, offering dignity, upending the status quo. And I'll be honest, in my study and preparation the last few weeks, I felt a pinprick of conviction at this point in the story every single time I read through it. Are there things that I should be standing up against 
ways that I should be using my voice and opportunities, people to whom I could offer dignity and humanity, but instead I stay quiet out of fear. Maybe I'm not the only one. What would it look like for each one of us in our respective neighborhoods and worlds and spheres of influence to follow Paul's example, to use the power each of us have to upend a system in order to rehumanize, to give dignity, to be voices of repair and love in the world. So that's the first vignette and the first question. So then the next thing that happens, Paul and Silas are jailed and shackled, and it's important that they're shackled. And then in the night, as a way of giving voice to their faith, they sing. And while they're singing, an earthquake strikes the prison. And not only are the cells opened, but the shackles are opened. And I'm not by any means an earthquake expert, although I am married to a guy who watches a lot of storm chaser videos, so it's kind of the same. But from a storytelling standpoint, this is so overt. It makes sense that the cell doors would open, right? Like if the structure of the whole building has been taken apart by the quake. But would the shackles open? Every single one? It's an important detail to include, and it's a way of telling us that they're not just sort of free and not on accident. They are all the way free as birds, and this has come about in a supernatural way very much on purpose. This is God's work. And then a very interesting thing happens next. And it's something that, to be honest, I have not, in the many times I've read this throughout my life, I didn't really connect in with this part until now. So the, the uh, prisoners are all free, and then the next thing that happens is the jailer sees this and contemplates taking his own life because immediately he goes right from the prisoners are free to it is all over for me. This is called catastrophizing. This is totally my jam. This is something with which I am very, very familiar. So one of the things that we always want to do when we're reading a section of scripture is we always want to ask ourselves, where do we see ourselves in this story? In which moments do we feel a sense of familiarity or recognition? Because one of the ways God uses our study of the Bible is to hold up a mirror and invite us to be transformed by it. And so what's happening here? Essentially, something bad happens in the course of the jailer's workday, and he immediately skips all the way to, this is absolutely as bad as it gets. Um, as Michael mentioned, I'm a writer. And this week, my editor, who I love and who I've worked with for a long time, she was in town. And uh, if she was here this morning, I promise that she would be delighted to regale you with many, many times I've said things like, uh, hey, just wanted to let you know I'm stuck on this section of the book, and uh, now it's pretty clear I'll have to cancel the contract and give back the advance, and I will probably never write again. <laughs> or just FYI, I saw so-and-so's review, and it was mostly fine, but there was like this one line you could sort of take either way, so I will just lay here forever, steeping in the juices of my own great public failure. <laughs> so I understand what's happening in the psyche of this jailer. And I understand him because this is what I have learned the hard way. We catastrophize when we feel a misplaced or unhealthy attachment to whatever it is that seems imperiled. Essentially, when we ask anything or anyone to give us the grounding and the security that only God can offer us. When we overvalue money, one financial misstep throws us right into panic. When we overvalue beauty, 
the aging process sends us into existential dread. When we overvalue our jobs, a bad day at work, beelines straight into, it's all over for me. But when we allow God and his love and his goodness to be the grounding, the safest, most secure place in our life, then a bad day at work doesn't require catastrophizing. Aging and financial uncertainty and difficult circumstances remain difficult, and I'm not at all saying that this deep grounding in God's love and goodness like chills us out to the point of not caring about our lives or our days, but I am suggesting that this part of the story is a way of demonstrating that the, the jailer is aching for a spiritual grounding that he currently does not have. And because that grounding, that deep nourishing foundation is not in place, when his job feels out of control, his whole life feels in jeopardy. And I understand this because I lived this way for many years. Untangling this inside of myself has been some of the most difficult and uh, profitable, productive spiritual work I've ever done. I've been a Christian for many years, but when it came down to it for many years, what I trusted was work to hold me and keep me safe instead of allowing myself to be grounded by God's love and goodness. What that means is when something shook my work world a little bit, I freaked all the way out. And so this is my question for you. Um, in what parts of your life do you tend to catastrophize? And might that be a clue that points you to something you're clinging to with both hands? What would it look like to release your white-knuckled hold on that thing and instead settle deeply into this grounding, nourishing place of God's love and goodness? What's so beautiful, what I love about this story, is you know that's exactly what's about to happen. So the jailer is firmly convinced it is all over for him. But here's the thing. The cell doors open, the shackles fall, and Paul and Silas don't run. This is so important. God gave them the power to run and to be free, but they restrained themselves from using it because they wanted to set someone else free. This is true power. They trusted the kingdom reality that true authority, true power is never, never at the expense of another person, but it always leads to freedom, not just for ourselves, but beyond ourselves. Healthy authority never meets his or her own needs and then stops. Healthy authority is always about seeing beyond ourselves and our own needs. So there's this world that we see in the first vignette, and it's about power that commodifies and objectifies. And now we're being given a new vision of power. It stands in place when it could run away. And it chooses to believe in freedom for all, not just for myself. Paul and Silas have the courage to stand and run. And what, yield, what that yields in the, in the jailer essentially is curiosity. He's saying, like, who gave you this power and how can I get some of that? So we've seen his fear and we've seen his catastrophizing. And now we're seeing the contrast and he's seeing the contrast between that fearful way of living and this brave way of living that Paul and Silas exemplify. And so in that moment, the jailer prays for the first time, and his heart begins to be flooded with that love and that peace and that bravery that he's been longing for. And I love this. He doesn't just acknowledge Jesus in his mind with new belief. He doesn't just turn his heart in prayer 
he immediately does two more things. He, invite, he leaves work and he invites Paul and Silas into his family and his home, and he feeds them. And this, I think this is so beautiful. This is the evidence of conversion. He leaves behind his work for relationship and hospitality because he's a man newly grounded in the freeing love of God. He's walking away from the thing that he's used for so long to keep himself safe, his work. And now he's free to practice relationship, to practice hospitality. This is holy transformation. And this holy transformation is possible because the jailer encountered two men, Paul and Silas, who were so rooted in God's grounding love and so captured by Jesus' vision of healthy power that always, always sets people free. Because this is the design. When we're deeply grounded in God's love for us and deeply captured by his vision for power, it gives dignity and freedom and people notice. So now I want to shift our gaze just one more time to this gospel reading. So this is the Acts reading. That's what I've been teaching from. And now we're going to go back to the gospel reading that goes with it for this Sunday in the church calendar. And it's a section from John. It's John 17, 20 to 26. And what I want you to do, it's sort of a, um, I want you to maybe close your eyes and picture if you had to diagram what I'm saying, what you would do. If you had to draw out, this is going to articulate a bunch of different relationships and connections. And I want you to kind of picture that you have like a marker and a whiteboard. How would you draw this out? Just listen along with me. Okay. And Jesus is praying right now. So Jesus is praying to his Father in heaven, and he says, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these, and these know you, know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love which with, with, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Okay. I apologize for stumbling a little bit. That's a lot of thems, and, and, and it's, this is like a tricky one. So what does your like, mental map look like? Like a like kind of a mess, right? Like almost like um, like a big beautiful circle with a dash of like who's on first, right? It's like a gorgeous, loving hairball of relationships, right? So what's happening is Jesus is saying to his father, "We enjoy such beautiful connection. We support each other. We learn from each other. We submit to each other. We give to each other. This relationship nurtures and sustains us both together with the Holy Spirit as the Trinity. And all who believe in me, I want that to be a bit available to them too. And the glory and the love and the goodness, I want it to be available. So you see this beautiful sort of mystical tangle that we are invited into, that we get to be included in the goodness and the love and the wisdom and the support that happens in the Trinity, the ultimate healthy relationship. We get to be invited into that. 
And from that, we're given this vision for power. It's always for good. It's always for moving beyond ourselves. So because of that beauty, so there's this, there's this sense that we are invited in into this kind of holy communion with God, with Jesus. We're given access to his love and his wisdom. And then it becomes a beautiful picture to everyone we encounter. Every time we make a choice that adds dignity, that adds freedom, people get to see closer and closer the beauty of that community because the way of the world it enslaves, it objectifies, it dehumanizes, it strips power away from. But the way of Jesus includes, invites, gives dignity and power and freedom. And you don't have to do it alone because you're a part of this greater circle, this greater communion, this greater supportive, nourishing grounding of love. So one last thought I want to share with you. One of the greatest gifts, we've been here six months, as I mentioned, one of the greatest gifts of this season has been um, getting to sit in spiritual direction with a truly extraordinary woman. She's an Episcopal priest and a seminary professor, and she's been serving in this city for more than 40 years. And this month ends her ministry here, and God has used the time that I have spent with her in such, like, totally healing and clarifying ways. I'm so deeply thankful for it. So one of the things um, that we've talked about in the course of our conversation feels like a, a helpful image for what we're talking about today. We were talking about the cross, obviously, like the most prevalent visual symbol of the Christian faith throughout history. And she said, you know, I've always thought it was funny that of all the possible symbols for the center point of our faith, the one that they chose all of those years ago was really, if you think about, more about suffering and solidarity with suffering than it was about triumph, right? The empty tomb would have been a symbol of celebration, but the cross isn't. It's the middle of the story. It doesn't tell the story of resurrection. It doesn't promise that it will be okay, but it's a symbol of a high cost dearly paid. It's a symbol of suffering. So what it promises, I think this is really compelling, it, what the cross promises is that when you suffer, you're not alone. And that the comfort and communion you experience is with one who has also suffered. The cross reminds us that you may well pay dearly for the good work you do. But that as you go about that sacred, world-changing work, you are never, never alone. And so I just want to end with one question and one reminder. The question is this, what will you do with your power? Will you perpetuate the pattern of this world or will you pursue freedom and wholeness, not just for yourself, but beyond yourself? And will you do that knowing that there very well may be a cost? And then a reminder of the very good news. This is not something you've been called to do alone. You get to borrow bravery from this great communion of believers, from Jesus himself, and from this beautiful tangle of faithfulness and courage and love. When you see the cross, may you be reminded that no matter the, no matter the cost you face, you are never alone and you stand with one who knows the pain of sacrifice deep in his bones. May you root yourself deeply 
in the nourishing foundation of God's grounding and freeing love. And may you fix your eyes on a beautiful vision of power that Jesus offers to us, a kind of power that brings freedom, dignity, bravery, and love for every one of us. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please take time to rate and review. And of course, we couldn't do this without your support. So if you would like to make a donation, you can text TGC Tribeca to 77977. That's TGC Tribeca to 77977. And your support is very much appreciated. Grace and peace to you.